Welcome, welcome, welcome to a Thanksgiving weekend edition of One Guy with a Mic, Dingers and Dunks. A lot less dingers and a lot less dunks this episode, that's for sure. So, what's this episode about this week? Oh, it's rivalry week, baby. That's right. We're talking Ohio State, Michigan at the big game. We're talking Auburn, Alabama, the Iron Bowl. We got even San Jose State, UNLV, my man, my guys, my boys, the Rebs, looking for a win to host their first ever Mountain West Championship game. We also have a little bit of a rundown of last week's of last night's games on Thursday, Thanksgiving, as well. And we got, of course, our picks for the weekend for not only college, but also NFL. So that's what's on tap for this episode so if you've given a listen to this far go ahead and drop that follow button go ahead and hit that like button ring the ring the bell whatever you got to do to get reminders that this podcast drops every friday or saturday morning sometimes <laughs> and uh we're talking football till the end of the year all right so go ahead and hop that and make that happen also if you ever feel like going to shankitgolf.com, go ahead and put one code one guy, O N E G U Y, at checkout, and you'll save yourself a little bit of cash. So, especially with the holiday season around, get that golfer in your life a few good things. Now, let's get started on this week's games, shall we? Let's start with the big game. We got Michigan, Ohio State, number two versus number three. All right, come in with the tail of the tape for this bad boy, right? Now let's see. You got, and this is how they've fared against common opponents: Michigan, Rutgers, thirty-one-seven; Ohio State, Rutgers, thirty-five-sixteen; Michigan, Minnesota, fifty-two-ten; Ohio State, Minnesota, thirty-seven-three. Indiana, Michigan 52-7, Ohio State 23-3, Michigan State 49-0, Ohio State 38-3, Purdue, Michigan 41-13, Ohio State 41-7, Penn State, Michigan 24-15 win, Ohio State 20-12, Maryland, Michigan 31-24, almost a loss, Ohio State 37-17. Now, how do these stack up on the offense? Well, Michigan's averaging 38.3 points per game. Ohio State's 33.6 points per game. Could be a high-scoring affair, folks. Total offense, Michigan averages 399.6 yards per game. Ohio State averages 429.3. Run offense, Michigan averages 171 yards per game rushing. Ohio State's 145.5. Ohio State passes the ball way more for yards. At 283.7. Meanwhile, Michigan passes the ball 228.6 yards per game. However, they complete 8% more of their passes. On defense, near lock. Near identical lock on this. With the Michigan defense only giving up 9 points per game, Ohio State's defense only gives up 9.3 points per game. They each only give up, Michigan only gives up 4.2 yards per play, while Ohio State only gives up 4 yards per play. Michigan's run defense only gives 3 yards per rush. Meanwhile, Ohio State's rush defense gives 3.3 yards per rush. The pass defense, 
Michigan only allows 53.8% completion rate. Meanwhile, Ohio State, you're only going to complete 50, 50.4% of your completions. You're both going to get 144 yards against this team. So that's the tail of the tape going into tomorrow's game. Now, when did this rivalry start? Well, it started in 1897, October 16th. First game ever, Michigan versus Ohio State, Regents Field. Michigan would go on and win 34-0. You know what? This also happens to take place 60 years after the Toledo War. So that was fresh in their minds. If you don't know what the Toledo War is, say the podcast will listen to it. Go look it up. We love history. We ain't just talking about Toledo, though. All right? So, <clears throat> from 1897 to 1912, Michigan would compile a 12-0 and 2 record. The 1902 game saw Michigan beat Ohio State 86-0. to Yeah, fun football. No forward pass at that point, I'm pretty sure. Then in the 50s, you had, uh, you had the Snowball, which can accounted for 46 punts. Michigan would win 9-3. Safety and a touchdown. Never gained a first down. That's hilarious. Then Woody Hayes came along, where the Buckeyes would win 12 of 18 contests, including a 1957 victory in Michigan Stadium, the first game in the series attended by over 100,000 fans. In 58, Ohio State had a 20-14 lead towards the end of the game. On the final play, Gene Sisniak ran the ball from the one-yard line for what might have been the game-winning touchdown, but not so fast. Dick Sheriffrath hit Sisniak, forcing a fumble. Ohio State would win. In the 68 game, Ohio State won 50-14, to outscoring his 4-29-0 in the second half. Let me tell you, Woody Hayes owned the Michigan Wolverines to start. Then Bo Schembacher became head coach. And you'd have the 10-year war where the lines of Woody Hayes saying, that team up north, he would never say the word in Michigan. He was famous for his intense rivalry, even to the point where he refused to get gas in an empty tank, saying, no, God damn it, we do not. We do not pull in and fill up. And I'll tell you exactly why we don't. It's because I don't buy one goddamn drop of gas in the state of Michigan. We'll coast and push this damn car to the Ohio line before I give this state a nickel of my money. Woody Hayes, fierce coach. So fierce, they decided to punch a Clemson linebacker in 1978, which then got him fired as well. So he was not a part of the 78 game. Um, however, Bo Schoenbecker had a 5-4-1 record against Hayes. And at the end of Hayes' tenure, the series stood at 42 for Michigan, 28 for Ohio State, with five ties. Earl Bruce took over for Hayes and would lead the Buccaneers to a 5-4 and four record against Schembuckler's Wolverines between 79 and 87, which happened to be the most balanced time that this rivalry ever, ever has happened. Bruce Earl would be the head coach. And he would go 5-4 and four against Schoenbrechler, like I said. And he would end up getting fired in 1987 before the big game, which the uh, Ohio State Buckeyes would go on to win over the heavily favored Michigan Wolverines. In 1988, the John Cooper era took over. As the And during the 13 games, 
during John Cooper's tenure as the Buckeye coach, they were dominated by Michigan. Wolverines went 10-2-1 during that stretch. Schimbrechler coached Michigan through the 89 season and then turned over the reins to one of his assistants, Gary Muller, who led the team for five seasons before Lloyd Carr took over in 95. The most notorious matchups of the year took place in 93, 95, and 96. In, an, in which Ohio State entered the game each year undefeated. The Buckeyes had a 9-0-1 record heading into the 93 game and were, were looking to claim an outright Big Ten title against Michigan that had already lost four times. However, not so fast, my friends, because the Wolverines shocked the Buckeyes 28 to nothing. And after the game, Cooper said that, that is, this is one of the most embarrassing games I've ever been involved with. In 95, number two Ohio State was led by eventual Heisman Trophy winner Eddie George. Future NFL Hall of Fame, or future NFL stars Orlando Pace, Terry Glenn, Mike Vrabel, Sean Springs, and Ricky Dudley. Glenn insisted there wasn't anything special about the Wolverines by saying, Michigan's nothing. Well, just so happens, Terry Glenn, you lost that game 31 to 23, my guy. And then in 1996, they boasted an Ohio State boasted an unblemished 10-0 record and were ranked number two in the nation, and they entered the finale with a 7-3 Michigan. When Ohio State jumped out to a 9-0 halftime lead, the OSU crowd sent a special finish and perhaps a number rise to number one. However, again, the Wolverines shut the Buckeyes out in the second half, while Brian Greasy replaced struggling Scott Driesbach and led the Michigan to 13 unanswered points and another victory over the rivalries. Rivals 13 to 9. Guess what doesn't happen? Michigan's number one. <laughs> In 1997, Ohio State had hoped to return the favor, with Michigan up 10-0 and number one in the polls. And then yeah, the 10 and um, uh, or I should say number four in the polls, and had Charles Woodson who. In this game, ran a pump block for a touchdown, intercepted a pass in the Ohio State end zone, and caught a 37 pass, 737 yard pass to set up freshman running back Anthony Thomas's a touchdown run. The Wolverines prevailed 20 to 14, all because of Charles Woodson. In '98, Tom Brady hit sophomore wide receiver Marquise Walker for the game-winning touchdown pass. <clears throat> Ohio State came back to win the '98 contest, but then Michigan went on to win. In 1999 and 2000, when Brady, like I said, hit Marquise Walker for a 24-17 victory in 99. In the 2000 game, Michigan grabbed a 31-12 lead and held on to win 38-26 behind Drew Henson. Yeah, that Drew Henson that went to play third base with the Yankees and ended up at quarterback with the Dallas Cowboys for a time. And finally, when... Uh, when Cooper was finally dismissed after so many losses to Michigan, Michigan State's failed students held a John Cooper Day in a mock celebration in Auburn in Ann Arbor, Michigan, on February 10th, 2001. Great time. Then Jim Trussell came along, and it was more of the same. Michigan beating Ohio State. They did have the game of the century where the Buckeyes did win it in 2006 40, when they were both 11-0 and and with a 42-9 win. And then you had the carousel of coaches that for both sides. And then now you had and then you had a Harbaugh versus Meyer. 
um, in which Harbaugh can never get the monkey off his back, ever. Now Harbaugh has is facing Ryan Day, and it seems like he owns Day. Just saying. So, this is the first time in Michigan Ohio State history that they that both have been ranked in the top three in back to back seasons playing each other in this game. This game not only has implications for the Big Ten championship game, but also implications for the college playoff as well. So, who do I think is going to win this game? I am picking the Michigan Wolverines running away with it on a score of like 36 to 18 or some crap. It won't be a close game. Michigan will run away with it, even without Jim Harbaugh on the sidelines. Next up, we have Auburn and Alabama, the Iron Bowl. Now this rivalry started in in February of 1893 with Auburn winning 32-22. This rivalry has met 87 times, totaling with the Alabama leading the series 49-37-1. I don't know if I mentioned before, but the last one was 60-51-6 Michigan-led in 118 meetings. Both of these long, long rivalries in college football. So, together they account for 36 SEC titles, 28 by Alabama, 8 by Auburn. Both are the most successful programs in major college football history. Alabama is second in all-time wins, while Auburn is 13th. The schools have been fixtures on national television since the 70s as well. For much of the 20th century, the game was played every year in Birmingham, winning Alabama winning 34 games and Auburn 19. Four games were played in Montgomery, with each team winning two. And then since 1999, the games have played been played at Jordan-Hare Stadium in Auburn every odd number year and Bryant-Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa every even number year. The contest became the extension of a better political debate which took place in the state of Alabama, in the Alabama State Legislature regarding the location of the new land-grant college under the state's application underneath the Moral Land-Grant Act of 1862. That's how far back this rivalry goes. It's crazy. So, Alabama, Auburn, played in Birmingham in 1893 in front of a crowd of 5,000 people. In 1902, a bill was introduced into both houses of the U.S. Congress to fund the creation of School of Mines and Engineering and each land grant. Yeah, see, this, this thing goes way back. I'm telling you, this thing's so far back, it's not even funny. So, let's get all of that all of that fidels, right? Let's just get to some notable games in this rivalry. First, in 1904, on November 12th, Auburn coach Mike Donahue defeated Alabama's first season, the purpose for his hiring. 1906, Alabama started running back Oxford Burks scored all the game's points on a 10-0 victory. Auburn contended that Alabama player T.S. Sims was an illegal player, but the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association denied the claim. The rivalry resumed in 1948 after being suspended 41 years due to issues related to player per diems and officiating. In 
Alabama would beat Auburn 55 nothing at Legion Field, which remains the largest victory in the series. In 64, the first Iron Bowl broadcast on national television, who other than Joe Willie Namath led Alabama to a victory over over Auburn 24-14. to In 1972, down 16-3 to late in the game, Auburn blocked two punts and returned both for touchdowns, leading to an improbable 17-16 Auburn win. And then coining a new phrase among Auburn fans, punt, Bama, punt. In 2010, ESPN.com ranked this game the eighth most painful outcome in college football history. Alabama would go on to win the next nine games in a row, though, and and became a reign of terror. In 81, Coach Paul Bear Bryant earned his 315th win after Alabama defeated Auburn 28-17. With the victory, Bryant passed Amos Alonzo Stagg to become the all-time winningest football coach at the time. This was the final game in Alabama's nine-game winning streak. In 84, wrong way bow. Trailing 17-15 late in the game, Auburn had a fourth and goal from the one yard, opting to go for it. Auburn called a pitch to running back Brent Fullwood. Running back Bo Jackson, who was supposed to block for Fullwood, ran in the wrong direction, allowing the Alabama defense to easily push Fullwood out of bounds short of the goal line. In 1985, the kick, Alabama beat Auburn 25-23 on a 52-yard field goal by Van Tiefen. Not that's the dude's name, Van Tiefen. As time expired, close game was elevated by the epic fourth quarter, with the teams trading haymakers and the lead changing hand four times. Alabama drove for their from their own twenty yard line in the final minute, including a fourth down flank reverse to keep the drive alive. In twenty eight fifteen in twenty fifteen, Paul Feinbaum, it's considered the greatest, still the greatest football he's ever seen. In 1993, number six Auburn defeated number 11 Alabama 22-14 to finish the season undefeated 11-0. The game at Jordan Hare Stadium was not televised due to Auburn's probation, but was shown on closed circuit television before 47,421 fans at Bryant and Denny Stadium. In 97, the fumble happened. Auburn 18, Alabama 17. Alabama fullback Ed. Sism fumbled on a screen pass that was meant to give the underdog Crimson Tide a game-sealing first down. Auburn Jarrett Holmes then converted a go-ahead 39-yard field goal, and Alabama's last chance from 57 yards fell short. The Auburn won the SEC Western Division title. In the 2000, in the first Iron Bowl played in Bryant-Denny Stadium, the first played... And the first played in Tuscaloosa since 1901, Auburn kicked three field goals to be Alabama 9-0. This would be Mike Dubois' final game as Alabama head coach. It is also, the, to date, the last time Alabama has been shut out in any game. 23 straight years hasn't been shut out since. In 2010, number two, Auburn defeated number 11, Alabama 28-27. In Tuscaloosa, racing a 24-0 deficit, the largest comeback win in serious history led by cam newton the camback preserved auburn's undefeated season which eventually resulted in auburn's second national title this is arguably the most contentious meeting in the rivalry's history with auburn fans decorating bear bryant's statue with a cam jersey and an alabama fam poisoning the famous oak trees at tumor's corner in 2013 it's the kick six 
Number four, Auburn defeated number one, Alabama, 34-28. With one second remaining in the game tied 28-28, Alabama's freshman kicker, Adam Griffith, attempted a 57-yard potential game-winning field goal, and it fell short. But who was back there? None other than Auburn cornerback Chris Davis caught the ball in the back of the end zone, and next thing you know, he was gone. 109 yards for the game-winning TD as time expired and what became known as the kick six game. It also won an SB that year for best game in any sport. And Davis won an SB for best play of the year. I still remember that game like it was yesterday. Still remember here heard Vern Lundquist saying that they can easily do this because of the for of the players they usually have on the field for a field goal are usually a bunch of linemen. So nobody's very fast. I still see the play in my head as I'm telling the story now. As Alabama is my number two favorite team. It's still a heartbreaker 10 years later. Which also by chance happens to be the celebration at Jordan-Hare Stadium this weekend as well. Commemorating the kick six game. In 2014 the following year, Alabama defeated number number one Alabama. Defeated number 15 Auburn 55-44. The highest scoring hour Iron Bowl ever. 2018, Alabama defeated unraked Auburn 52-21 behind Tua Tagovailoa, who passed for five touchdowns and ran for one more. It would be the first time that an Alabama player would account for six touchdowns in a single game. In 2019, number 15, Auburn defeated at number five, Alabama 48-45 in a classic back and forth. Tua was lost for an injury for a few weeks earlier, so Mac Jones comes in, but Auburn intercepted Jones twice, returning both for touchdowns. And then Alabama missed a game-tying field goal late in the fourth quarter. They did fourth one. They did um, force Alabama fourth down on the next position, um, and then they were caught for too many men on the field. And in 2021, Alabama defeated an unranked Auburn 24-22 in a four-overtime game with Bo Nix, who's currently playing for Oregon. Did not play that game with a, due to an ankle injury. After allowing seven sacks and committing 11 penalties, Alabama trade, trailed 10-3 with a minute 43 remaining. The Tide, led by current Carolina Panthers quarterback Bryce Young, drove 97 yards for a game-tying touchdown to force the first overtime in Iron Bowl history. Then they would play three more. So, there you have it. It's a big game. A lot of a lot of upsets. Seems a lot of fun. Can't wait. Prediction is Nick Saban runs wild all over this because Nick Saban's has a eleven and five record against Auburn since two thousand and seven. The second most of any Alabama coach ever. And Bear Bryant's nineteen and six. So. I'm taking Bama, and I'm taking Bama against Georgia in the SEC championship game as well. So, there you have it. There is that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, let's talk about the most improbable football run in college football history currently by your UNLV Rebels, a team that's made, as I've said on this program before, four bowl games ever, winning three of them 
Okay. So the UNLV football began in 1968. They became a member of the Mountain West since 1999. They played 46 total total seasons. They have one conference championship and appeared in four bowl games, winning in three of them. Okay. This is a team of destiny, I think. This is the team that's leading us to the promised land. The funness that never ends. You got to remember when UNLV started their football program in 1968. They were an independent for the first four years. Then they were a Division II for four years. Then they were a Division I AA for three years. Then, in 1982, they joined the Pac West, which became the Big West. They were part of that conference for 13 years, then they joined the WAC for three years, and then in 1999, they joined the Mountain West. They have never held on to a Mountain West title ever. They've never finished first in the regular season in the Mountain West ever. Right now, they're currently in first. They currently have a chance to host the Mountain West Conference Championship game at Allegiant Stadium. Can I say this anymore? This is the biggest game the UNLV Rebels program will ever play in up to this date. And we are brought to this brought to it by the man, the myth, the legend. Barry Odom, guy that came from Arkansas as an OC and has definitely done everything he can to help us win. So, we are the UNLV Rebels. So, what does this mean? Well, you know, how big is this rivalry? Well, San Jose State, um, they have a chance to actually make the they have a chance to make the uh, the Mountain West title game with a win. Fair enough. San Jose State has been surprising of late. It's crazy to me how good they've been. Right? So, let's just have a little break. So, let's talk about the 84 team, first of all. The 84 team had Randall Cunningham. Okay, The 1984 UNLV Rebels fam had Randall Cunningham. The guy was a quarterback and punter. He made All-American as a punter. They had, for running back, their lead back was Kirk Jones. Go on to the NFL. They also had Icky Woods, who was a freshman at the time, but he only he only had 11 carries that year. Tony Gl- uh, Gladney led the team in receptions with 41. Or no, sorry, take that back. Was second on the team in 40 with 41 receptions. The most with yards, though, 692. Michael McDade had 46 receptions, leading the team with the receptions, had 548 yards receiving. Reggie LaFrance, the tight end, had 42 receptions and 510 yards. That 84 team would go 11-2 is what they would go. They won against San Jose State, 30-15. They beat New Mexico State 28-21. They beat Wichita State. They lost to Hawaii. That's when Hawaii was actually pretty good. Uh, They beat Long Beach State. They beat Idaho State. They beat Pacific. That's when these guys all had football programs. Which I don't think the the Pacific Coast Conference, now known the Big West, is still, still a conference, folks. Just to let you know. 
Doesn't seem like it. But they're I think they're they're only basketball only now. But they would lose to number ten ranked SMU at in Vegas. Thirty eight twenty one. To finish the season ten and two. Then they would go on and win the bowl game. The California Bowl against Toledo thirty to thirteen. Right. Like I said, Randall Cunningham Wood is a certified god for in UNLV. So, what do we got going on here? Well, we got the Rebels, Spartans, nine and two, six and five. All right. Uh, the Rebels have won nine of its last or have won each of its last nine games at home as the favorite. Um, the Rebels <clears throat> have posted a solid offense of 465 yards against the Air Force that helped them win. They also had to come from back, come from behind win against that. This team could actually be undefeated if not for the Fresno State game. Right? Right. San Jose State comes into this game on a five-game win streak. It is ridiculous how well the San Jose State team has turned it around. That is for sure. San Jose State has definitely turned this turned their season around uh, recently. And they, because they beat San Diego State last week, they beat Fresno State the week before. They were they beat Hawaii thirty-five to nothing. Their last loss, San Jose State's last loss, was to Boise State on October seventh, and that was a thirty-five thirty-seven game in Boise. Before that, they their two other two of their other uh, of their other losses were against USC and Oregon State, a couple Pac-12 teams. They have gone on to beat, like I said, New Mexico, Utah State, Hawaii, Fresno State, and San Diego State, putting up 24 or more points each game. Meanwhile, UNLV. Their only blemish is Fresno State on October 28th. I mean, they lost to Michigan 35 to 35 to 7 week two. Yeah, that's fine. But they're both explosive offense offenses for sure. So, what can we say about this? UNLV averages 35.9 points per game behind a freshman quarterback, Jaden Maivia. Maiava. Sorry, killed your name, Jaden, my bad. He has 2,389 passing yards and 13 touchdowns. The most for a QB, UNLV QB since, Randall Cunningham. I don't know if that's a true stat. I just uh, like saying Randall Cunningham. Ricky White the third has caught 70 balls for 1,189 yards. Pretty sure he's the one of the first, one of the only UNLV uh, 
wide receivers with a, over 1,100 yards receiving. Through the first six games of the season, San Jose State was the worst defense in the league. Then all of a sudden, they turned it around. It's been crazy. It's been great. I'm actually – I have much respect for San Jose State and what they've done this year. I just think that the UNLV running Rebels – and, yeah, we're going to use the basketball team, the men's basketball league, the running Rebels for this, for this team because we need to. We need to, bring, we need to bring back Reb as our mascot. We need to have a full student section tomorrow. We need to bring the fire. I wish I was out in Vegas for it. To feel that power of Allegiant Stadium just booming with hype. I have, I am by far the luckiest fan right now with UNLV. We got a good, you know, these sports are, have flipped the script. Once the men's basketball team gets going, we'll be all right. But you got girls basketball, one of the Mountain West last year, two years in a row. Going to do a third one, right? You got football finally, finally getting a coach that can do something. I mean, we've, we've had our Tony Sanchez's and we've had, um, and I mean, we've had guys come and go. Uh, that we thought were going to be the saviors of UNLV football, and they just couldn't do it. Uh, and it's been bad. I mean, not bad, but it's just been like the city of Vegas just needs that. And I feel like this football team is getting that 91 uh, UNLV Rebels type of feeling around it. I mean, look. Here's a list of coaches I've come in and tried to turn this program around. John Robinson, one of the best football coaches of all time. Hired in 99 for 2004, right? You had Tony Sanchez, won so many titles. Marcus Arroyo, who was one of the best coordinators. Um, but it's, it's all been for not. It's all been for not so now is time now is the time now is the time for the UNLV Rebels to stand up win one more game to clinch a to host the Mountain West Conference Championship game in Vegas now is the time for the UNLV Rebels to go on and beat I don't care who it is next Saturday and win a Mountain West Conference title game for the first time in Fran- for the first time in school history. Then you know we're going to go on to a bowl game, and this is just the beginning, folks. Because we, as Rebels, have a great future ahead of us. So, with that, let's get into our NFL picks for the week, shall we? We were. The Swami last week was like eight and six. It was a horrible week for us. But then again, there was a lot of different games last week. So, so far we're two and one this week, or no, three and one after winning the three out of the four games this so far this week. So let's start with our first matchup: Saints Falcons. Saints. Steelers Bengals. Steelers taking the Steelers over the Browning offense. Panthers Titans. 
I'm going Panthers. I think Bryce Young gets another win. Tampa Bay, Indianapolis. Going Tampa Bay. Don't I really like the Bay for Baker Mayfield train. New England, New York. The Patriots win. Tommy DeVito doesn't stand a chance against a Bill Belichick defense. Houston, Jacksonville. Winner of this game, I think, is in first place in the in the uh, South Division. Going to Houston, their defense is just too hot right now, and that's D'Amico Ryan's has that team playing. Next up, the Cleveland Browns and the Denver Broncos at mile high, and we're going the Cleveland Browns. The L.A. Rams versus the Cardinals. Kyler Murray gets a win at home. Chiefs, Raiders. I had the Raiders picked. Max Crosby's doubtful. Still picking the Raiders. Got to be that homer. Next up is the three o'clock game at three twenty-five. The prime or the main event on Sunday afternoon: Eagles, Bills, and Philly. The Bills still up and down, so we're taking the Eagles with the win, coming off the win against the Chiefs. And on your Sunday night capper, you got the Ravens, Chargers at SoFi, and we're going Baltimore Ravens over the Chargers. I think Staley's out at the end of the season. For the simple fact he won't let anybody else call defensive plays. And on Monday night, you get the Bears-Vikings Battle of the North. 3-8 and eight Bears versus the 6-5 and five Vikings. The Vikings at home, even without Justin Jefferson. Josh Dobbs wins. So there you have the picks for the week. You've got my three main picks for the weekend. And we'll throw a couple more out there. Florida, Florida State. Florida State. It's easy. NC State, NC, UNC. We're going UNC. I'm saying South Carolina beats Clemson, though. And again, I appreciate every one of you guys listening, tuning in to me every week. And I will continue to do Football Fridays till the end of the year. And I hope you guys are enjoying them. You also find me on YouTube as well. One Guy with a Mic is the channel. Go subscribe. Let's get that subscriber list up. You guys are the best. Thank you. Have a great weekend. All right, I would like to correct a few errors that I made during this podcast. Uh, first of all, a, there have been five UNLV wide receivers with over 1,000 yards in receivings. Uh, Daryl Hambrick, Damon Topkins, Randy Gatewood, Devontae Davis, and Jim Sandusky. Also, <clears throat> for passing yards, it's not the first time since Randall Cunningham. Someone's thrown over 2,000 yards, okay? So... Correction, Bob Stockham threw for 2,400 yards in 1993. Nick Sherry threw for 2,500 yards, 2,544 yards in 2012. John Denton threw for 2,587 yards in 1997. Caleb Herring threw for 2,718 yards in 2013. Blake Decker threw for 2,886 yards in 2014. And John Denton threw for 3,591 yards in 1996 and the player with the single season record for passing yards is sam king with 37 with 3778 yards in 1981 so those are a few of the mistakes that i made in this podcast that i would like to correct however i do just like to say the name randall cunningham because he is one of my favorite football players of all time him and Mike Vick.